One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Basha Cummings. I'm Kerry Thomas. This is the Tortoise Podcast. We've got two quick things to say about Tortoise. The first is that we're a new type of news publisher. We're all about what we call slow news. We care about why things are happening, not just what's happening. And the second thing is that, except for this podcast, we publish mainly through an app, and it would be brilliant if you got it. You can find us in the iTunes app store if you search for Tortoise. And while the election is on, we're offering four weeks free membership if you're on iOS. We're at the end of week two of the election campaign, week two of this podcast. No-one much wants to have an election in December. Kerry, what have we learnt this week? I think the first thing I've learnt is that everybody's probably wildly overestimating how interested people are and how much they know about this election. Because if you look at Google searches on both mobile and desktop, the most searched question of week one was, wait for it, what is a general election? And the second most popular search was, who will win the general election? I've tried that. It's not very good at giving an answer. (laughs) Something else happens to the results as well. They're passed down here into an electronic computer. So I think the thing that I learnt this week is that the Remain Alliance is not a thing. In fact, it's complete chaos. So rather than working together uh, in some constituencies, the Lib Dems said they wouldn't stand, then they did. In others, it was a complete flip-flop. It's clear that rather than working together or there being any kind of collaboration, it's really just chaos. And what do you think of that music? Uh, I'd say that's pretty horrifying. Okay. <laughs> So the next thing that we learned, I am definitely going to make you explain because I think it's a dangerous one and I'd like to hold you to it in future weeks. Okay, we're definitely (laughs) going to forget this if it doesn't work out. But I think if I had to bet now on the outcome of the election, I would bet on a Conservative majority. So all the, yeah, thank you very much, all (laughs) the usual caveats, anybody who tells you they know what's going on, doesn't know what they're talking about, yada, yada, yada. But I think we do know some bits and pieces. So we know, I think, or becoming increasingly obvious that Jeremy Corbyn is a really huge problem for Labour. I've talked to two people who've been out doing focus groups, and they've both told me that when they mention Jeremy Corbyn in those groups, people just laugh. They don't think he's dangerous. They don't think he's a threat. They just think he's useless. And that's a really hard thing to get over. Add to that. The Tories think they won't get wiped out in Scotland. They think they'll hold on to some seats there. But actually, Labour might. They were 12% in a poll this week, which is astonishing. And the Conservatives will probably pick up some seats from Labour in Wales. So put all that together. Throw in the spread betting indexes, which uh, are cautiously moving towards a Conservative win. And all the needles that I can see are pointing towards a Conservative majority, not anywhere else. Well, you've said it here now, and I'm going to hold you to it. 
So one of the things that really struck me this week was that there's this sort of cool conservative digital campaign and it really feels like the Tories have finally discovered the internet and we should congratulate them for that. They had this viral hit this week, which was a, a straight rip-off of Vogue's 73 Questions, you know, which usually they ask people like Liam Gallagher, Olivia Coleman, Taylor Swift. The Tories did a version for Boris Johnson. They only put 12 questions to him, though. What was the last thing you baked? Um, a gluten-free, dairy-free chocolate cake. How do you typically start your day? I tend to get up pretty early and then I go down and uh, take the dog for a walk and dog does his business and so on and so forth. And then there was this weird and subtle tribute to Vaporwave. Let's get Brexit done. Which is a genre of music I confess I did not know about, um, but luckily our producer Tom explained it to me. So Vaporwave is a piece of internet culture that borrows heavily from the musical styles and aesthetics of primarily the 1980s, but also the 1990s, okay. uh, to kind of make this fabricated nostalgia. So you get a lot of 80s synths, and some of it is just slowed down old 80s commercials, and all the videos look like they've been played through old VHS tape lights and things like that. And where does it live? It lives primarily on the internet. <laughs> And the interesting thing is that it's nostalgia created by people that primarily weren't born or came of age in the 80s. I've seen things like Mogwave and... Yeah, so Mogwave is, is definitely on the more niche end. There's lots of spin-offs. There's Simpsons Wave, which it takes clips from The Simpsons. And there's Fash Wave, which is kind of the more alt-right end, not as oh nice. But then there's also Mogwave, which is Jacob Rees-Mogg and quotes from him under Vaporwave music. My favourite is uh, Floxy Noxy Nihilification, which is a banger. Wow, okay. Floxy Noxy Nihilification. There's obviously no way of figuring out if this very knowing approach to social media works, but it is a sign that there's a kind of younger gang, I'm going to guess they're mostly dudes, young guys, uh, who are in charge of the Conservative Digital campaign, and that feels like a big change from 2017. OK, so here we go. Because the digital battleground may be the most important one, and I think we can only glimpse a tiny, tiny fraction of it, that's what we're going to look at this week. And we're going to be looking specifically at what kind of platforms the parties are using, how much money they're spending and where they're getting their data from. And we're going to wrestle with a question that probably nobody really knows the answer to. Does digital campaigning actually work? So as we keep saying, only week two of this podcast, but already an innovation, a groundbreaking innovation. Election campaigns are like a theme park for people who like graphs. They're everywhere in newspapers and they're all over Twitter. Traditionally, you might think a graph is not great in a podcast. But what if you're wrong? What if you can do an audio graph? Now, you're not the only one who hasn't heard this before. Basher hasn't, <laughs> Basher hasn't heard it either. I take nothing for granted. There were 23 Facebook pages. I was going to call all my billionaire friends until I realised I didn't have any. Ensuring that the money, the money, money, never mind the backstop, the buck stops here. So, Basha, what was that? What uh, was that graph describing? That sounds like when I don't reply to my group chats and they go mental. All right, so let's explain, shall we? I have no idea. That, that is was. a short history of UK digital campaigning in the 2017 general election. So each of those pings represents £100,000 spent on Facebook ads by the SNP, the Lib Dems, Labour and the Conservatives. 
the Conservatives were the big spenders in 2017 and the same is true now. So but let's just okay, let's know. have it again. Let's, let, let's listen to it again. I take nothing for granted. There were 23 Facebook pages. I was going to call all my billionaire friends until I realised I didn't have any. Ensuring that the money, the money, money... Never mind the backstop. The buck stops here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work as a graphic without quite a lot of explanation, but it's a good segment. Okay, well, now that I've finished cringing, let's get a bit more serious. This isn't just about a few viral hits or some rogue attempts to get down with the kids. This is a digital strategy that is primarily about scale. So in the last few years, we've heard Dominic Cummings, he was obviously the campaign director of Vote Leave, repeat a few times the staggering number, which is that in the 10 weeks of the referendum campaign in 2016, in the lead up to the Brexit referendum, they served up a billion and a half adverts to 7 million voters that they had profiled as persuadable. That's over 200 ads per person, an inescapable amount of digital advertising. But that was three years ago. So let's hear from somebody who's working on this Conservative campaign, who was speaking to our colleague, Alexi Mostras. How old are you? Uh, 27. And you're the oldest person in your office? Oldest person at the agency, by, by quite a way as well. <laughs> <laughs> and just tell me how you think digital political campaigning has changed from 2017, which wasn't that long ago, mm -hmm. to this political campaign? In one word, I'd say it's professionalised. They've let the young people take over, which is fantastic. So, Alexi, who was that? So that was Craig Dillon. He is the founder of a digital media agency called Westminster Digital. He used to be a Sky News presenter that focused on celebrity. And his story was that in 2017, he was so appalled by the standard of social media around politics that he decided to form his own agency to get political messages out there. And the thing about Craig is that he's 27, but the average age of his team is 23. None of them have politics degrees. None of them have PPE degrees from Oxford. He says they're all, or the majority of them are from Essex. They're all into football. They don't even know who some of the candidates are that they end up making films for. And he says that that ignorance, if you like, helps them to focus on getting a message out there that is not going to be wonky and insular, but is going to cut through and help people who aren't really involved in politics understand what a politician is trying to say. And when he said more professional, what did he, what did he mean? To understand what's going on now, you need to go back two years to 2017, when it was widely agreed that what the Tories did on social media was pretty disastrous. They spent more than Labour on Facebook ads, but they reached only a fraction of the number of people. And they ended up posting things like embarrassing pictures from Theresa May's party conference, and it was all a bit cringy and ineffective. And in the space of less than two years, what's happened, and what Craig is talking about, is that everything has professionalised. They've taken the whole idea of digital responsibility and transformed it from something that was bolted on to a traditional campaign to something that is now at the centre of it. It's the main battleground. The fight is on digital at the moment. I still 
am consistently mind blown by the amount of money that candidates are still spending on leaflets. I always look at what the commercial world is doing. When was the last time you got a, a leaflet through the door from Boots? If they're not doing it, why are political parties still doing it? So how does Dylan fit into the wider shift at Conservative HQ and what the sort of digital shift for the party? So what's really happening is that there are three main avenues of how the Tories are getting out social media. One is through agencies like Westminster Digital. The other is individual MPs deciding off their own back to make videos of themselves using their iPhones and just sticking them up on Facebook. But the main source of social media messaging for the Tories are two young New Zealanders called Sean Topham and Ben Goering. So tell us about those two. Tell us about Topham and Goering. So these two guys are still ridiculously young. And this is a theme of any successful, it seems, social media strategy that you've got to have young people actually at the front and centre of the operation. So Sean Topham is the eldest. He's 28. His partner, Ben, is only 24. And yet they have been involved in multiple campaigns before this stage. They, they started off in New Zealand, working for a guy called Bill English. And their skills were really put on show this year when they ran Scott Morrison's digital operation. Now, Scott Morrison is the centre-right politician that came from behind to win the prime ministership of Australia. And Sean and Ben were widely credited with helping him do that because by all metrics, they beat Labour in the social media game. OK, so these two have kind of trotted around the globe, even at their relatively young age. How did they get to be involved in this campaign? When they were working for Scott Morrison, or ScoMo, as they branded him, <laughs> the deputy campaign director was a guy called Isaac Levido. He was and is the protege of Sir Linton Crosby, the guy who's known as the Wizard of Oz because he's such a good political campaigner. And Isaac is now heading up the whole campaign for Boris Johnson. So Isaac Levito brought over Ben and Sean to sit right next to him at CCHQ headquarters in London to make sure that Boris Johnson's online campaign was as good as it could be. They're calling it the pod of power. They are, indeed. <laughs> so what do we know about how they think about social media and digital media? These guys don't really talk to the press. They maintain an aura of opacity on purpose in terms of their methods. But I did find a video that had been posted on YouTube in July where Ben Goering was talking to a conference about how his agency helped Scott Morrison win. You've got to shock people. You've got to unlock and arouse an emotion in people, right? People talk a lot about engagement, and engagement is a response of emotion. We all know that, right? Like, we're not going to interact with something if we don't care about it. But the particular emotions that we need to unlock are arousal emotions. We're talking anger, excitement, pride, fear. Your content should be relating to one of these emotions for anyone to give a damn about it. So what Ben was talking about was how to win what he called the battle of the thumbs. He pointed out that you only have 1.7 seconds for someone to scroll through a video before they ignore it and move on to another piece of content. So he came up with these rules that are quite interesting in terms of how we see what the Tories are doing now. The first one is if you really want your message out there, it's got to be like water dripping off a stone. In other words, you've got to constantly 
put out the same message over and over again. And at the height of the Scott Morrison campaign, Topham Gurin were putting out 200 posts a week. So he said, look, if you had a choice between getting a great creative director to come up with a beautiful, aesthetically pleasing ad that took a week, or you got a work experience kid to slap up a PowerPoint in Comic Sans font, get it out there. The key thing is to get your message out there. Variety is really important. Volume is really important. Speed is really important. And then you've got to tailor the content in order to try and elicit loyalty and emotion. And Alexi, what what do we know about what they've done for the Conservatives so far in this election? We can see quite a lot of their output coming out. For instance, there was a post that said, get Brexit done, written purposefully in Comic Sans, and it got picked up on Twitter because it was naff. But this is all playing into their hands because it ended up getting shared a lot more than it would otherwise. When they were in Australia, they posted a picture of a dog And underneath there was a tagline that says, paying tax is bad. And the simple fact of putting a dog in the picture meant that it was shared and shared and shared and shared. So there's a sense of playfulness about what they do. But it also is a byproduct of the fact that they're putting out so much stuff day in, day out. So, Alexi, obviously one of the things last week that really kicked off online was this doctoring of a Keir Starmer video where it looked like he didn't know the answer to a question on Good Morning Britain. Do we think that these are the guys behind that? There's no way of telling explicitly, but they are certainly front and centre of CCHQ's digital and social media operations. So you have to assume that they were behind it. And also, you can go back to their activities in New Zealand, and they were accused then of doing a very similar thing to a Jacinda Ardern video, where she was asked about striking and would she make sure that there were no strikes. And she said, I will make sure that there are no strikes. And then that was intersposed with lots of evidence that there were strikes. But critics of Topham Goering said, hold on a second, you've missed out the first half of the question that was asked to her. And actually, you've misrepresented it. Mm. So there's still an argument around that. But certainly there is a controversial side to Topham Goering that has to be considered alongside the playfulness. In what ways are they controversial beyond the politics. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, we've got to be quite careful here because we're dealing with allegations that haven't been completely firmed up. But there was a report in The Guardian this year that alleged that Sean Topham had behaved in a misogynistic manner to a number of people within the offices of Crosby Texter, which is where they were at that time based. Now, he strongly denied it. We found a video that Sean Topham starred in when he was at the University of Auckland doing law. Now, it's a parody video of House of Cards where he plays Frank Underwood, who's the star of the programme that was played by Kevin Spacey. And it's quite funny, it's quite well produced, but as you can hear, it does have some controversial lines in it that don't sit well to some people. I'm a glass half full kind of guy, but I simply detest having to submit myself to this vetting process. I've spent the evening narrowing down the competition. Michael Kearns, straight A's for three years, the Dean's pet, editor of the Law Review, the written version, not the one where they parade around on stage, Linda Clark, Fingers and many pies and many fingers in her own. Blonde, check. President of the Law Society, check. And a rack the size of Texas, check. And for those who don't know what a rack is, it's breasts. I thought you said Iraq. Iraq is a country in the And what's Iran? Though? <laughs> Even ruder, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I think what's fascinating, I think, Alexi, about all this is we feel like we're, we're just getting these little glimpses of things and, and managing to put together an understanding of who these people are, how they work. And given all that, I was amazed, actually, how, how open and how candid Craig Dillon was with you because most people in his position aren't. So what what else did you think you learnt from, from him? Well, I suppose there are two points to, to make on that. The first is that... Speaking to these guys, you will get a picture of how they want you to see the new social media operation, which is highly professionalized, quite structured and quite positive. So one thing that Craig told me was that the old negative messages that perhaps worked a few years ago weren't really playing on social media in the same way. That if you really wanted to cut through the noise and appeal to people like his mum, then you've got to present a positive message. It's about, you know, aspiration, how they're going to make the country fantastic if they get in. And it's about that positive messaging. And that is what works on digital and that's what works on social media. So anyone who's still pushing those old hateful messages that may have worked in 2016 or whenever they first tried them at the Brexit referendum and, and Trump and things like that, it, it's it's not working anymore. And is Boris the most charismatic politician you've ever worked with? No. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think there's any chance this could blow up in their faces? I think it's definitely a risk because what you're doing is you're outsourcing your entire social media operation to two guys who are in their 20s. So 
in terms of what they bring to the table, they bring the ability to connect with a younger audience. They bring the power of the messaging that they're conveying. They bring the ability to pump out 200 messages a week. But how much control is going to be over that messaging? It's all, it's all very well to have this 80-20 rule, which is what Ben Gurin has. If it's 80% of the way there, he says, it goes out. But it's worrying structurally to have a situation where people who primarily care about the power of the message rather than about the message itself are put in charge of something so influential and powerful. Matt Dancona, Polly Curtis, fellow editors are, are with us now. Matt, can I just start with you? We've heard an awful lot about the volume of adverts that, that are going to be produced in this campaign and some of the thinking that goes behind them. What is there that we should worry about in the overall scheme of, of social media and the way the way digital is used in election campaigns these days? I think there are two principal things. One is that we're in danger of looking at this purely as, as if it was a rerun of the 2016 referendum in terms of the the techniques used and they've been significantly enhanced and refined since then that's one worry the second worry is that the the law that governs digital ads was passed in 2000 which means that it is completely blind to digital ads that's four years before facebook was invented and about seven years before people started really having smartphones so the law that governs all this doesn't really govern anything. There's no real form of regulation to speak of. There's a Communications Act, uh, which applies to some of the YouTube posts. But as Jess Phillips found out when Carl Benjamin used YouTube to debate whether or not he wanted to rape her during the European elections campaign, that act is too old to understand digital media. And so though there was concerted effort to see whether it was possible to prosecute him, it proved impossible. So the headline is that we are really in the Wild West here as far as the information flow goes. I think following Matt's point, I think we need to think about digital advertising in a slightly different way in this election. It's not just about broadcasting from parties to people and affecting their views. I actually think the really big thing that's happening on digital this election is the conversations happening out there in private Facebook groups, on WhatsApp groups. It's not about the big companies necessarily starting those conversations. It's about how they feed those conversations. And most important about how the political parties hear those conversations. So I think the genius of Dom Cummings is that he hears the conversation that's happening in the country. You know, I'm really struck by conversations we had at Thinking in Grimsby this week, where I asked what they were seeing online, and not one of them mentioned political advertising. What they immediately talked about was the horrible conversations that's happening in the Facebook groups. And they were talking about death threats over Brexit. They were talking about really, really vile stuff. And it was one of those moments in thinking where the, where the volume goes up, where you feel like you've really hit a nerve for people. And that's where this kind of nastiness is feeling at the moment. Do you think there's a bleed through from 
political messaging into those conversations or are they an independent thing, do you think? The problem is, how do you even quantify what's happening in these private spaces? But I think the thing that we underestimate the whole time, and particularly in this election where we're so thinking about social media, is we underestimate the fact that people have conversations every day and actually it is about those exchanges. And I think these things are happening offline as well. And when you think about WhatsApp and Facebook groups, it's not a broadcast problem. It's a conversation problem. It's about how we're talking about things. And it's got the added layer of anonymity that makes people behave much worse. It was really moving being in a thinking with Remainers and Brexiteers actually starting to get a bit nasty with each other in the way that they talked about online and then pulling themselves back and actually listening to each other in a way that doesn't necessarily happen at the moment. They, you know, they're, they're in their individual spaces and it was fascinating to see them actually engage about it. I mean, one thing that we don't yet know is what's the bleed through from the kind of provocative online advertising to the conversation that you're talking about. What we don't know yet is the impact that that will have on the ballot box and whether whether this is breeding a kind of disengagement from politics where, you know, the tone amongst people is just getting nastier and nastier and they're switching off from politics or whether it's actually breeding a new form of political engagement. What do you think, Matt? It was interesting. Um, I did the thinking in Birmingham Yardley and all the people there were emphatic that social media was playing absolutely no part in their decision making and they were all digital, digitally literate. They were all on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. But of course, that's not really how advertising works in the sense that what it does is it, is it enters the mind cloud above your head and influences you in ways you can't really directly explain. And I think as Polly was saying, and it's partly to do with what your peers and your counterparts and your family are saying and doing. It enters the discourse. And I think what you'll see is that a lot of the advertising in this election is probably quite sophisticated. I mean, the Boris Johnson um, video with him being chased down a corridor talking about cups of tea and fish and chips. The sort of Vogue-style... The Vogue-style thing. Yeah. It was very interesting because I'm sure that we'll see a much more aggressive version of Boris Johnson close to polling day. But this was obviously an attempt to uh, contrast him with May and to uh, tell people this is, this is a regular guy, fish and chips, cups of tea, holding doors open. It's not a very sophisticated um, method in and of itself, but it's extraordinary how much... You know, already column inches, broadcast segments have been devoted to it. There's a big debate about whether we should. I think you have to. I don't think you can deny that this is part of discourse and simply not, not talk about it. But it's certainly the case that every time we talk about it like we are now, we're doing their work for them to a certain extent. And, the, and I guess the, tr the trick is to try and analyse it and say, what, what, is this, what is this doing? What, is, what are they trying to get us to say and think? I think we've had this back and forth between Twitter and Facebook, haven't we, in the last few weeks, actually, about whether it's possible to ban political ads. Twitter has. Facebook says it won't, but also says it's really difficult. I've actually got some sympathy with that Facebook point of view that actually defining a political ad is a tough thing to do because there's a lot of noise around them. There are, there are groups who can, who can wade in without being officially labelled a political party. Where are we likely to go with this in legislative terms, do you think? Well, it's interesting because Twitter doesn't really carry that much political advertising. So this was a this was a straight tech move to try and put Facebook on the spot and it and it worked. I think we are miles away from a legislative answer to all this. 
and we need one urgently. There was actually a very good select committee inquiry into this by Damien Collins, and, and I gave evidence to it. And, and in the course of this process, I was asked by one of the MPs what an app was. Wow. Now, that gives you a sense of the level of, of ignorance there is out there. And, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg was interviewed by the Senate, there was a comparable level of ignorance until, you know, more recently when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez interrogated really him. Really him. And that was... Yeah. Uh, that, that to me was an inflection point because it was the first time a mainstream legislator in the Western world had really nailed big tech. So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in... I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual disinformation. Yes, in in a democracy, I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are you saying won't take judge them their down. character for themselves. So you won't take, you may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. It was a really important moment. But the, but the sad thing is it was, it was notable because it was so unusual. So I sat on the Cairn Cross Committee, which was ordered by the government to look at how you regulate tech codes to support public interest news. Um, and that supported the idea of a regulator the idea of a ministry of truth is really scary. You don't want a any government deciding what can and can't go on the internet. But we regulate offline advertising. No one really has particular complaints about that. You need some kind of regulation that will stop kind of really blatant stirring of feelings that are dangerous, but also things that are really patently not true. And I think as we see more deep fake technology coming on, that we're going to have to do something about that because it could get really, really dangerous. Yeah, and, and Matt, just finally, let's imagine the Conservatives win this election, that they think that the social media digital aspect of the campaign has been one of their stronger things. How rapidly do you think they'll want to scamper towards regulation in those circumstances i think at a glacial pace <laughs> i don't i really don't think that the kind of populist agenda that boris johnson wants to pursue uh, is compatible with any sort of regulation of the sort that polly was describing I think that they will shelve the Collins report. They'll do as much as they can to ignore the Cairn Cross stuff. It'll, it'll be put not even on the back burner, into the back larder. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Matt, Polly, that's great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Basher, it's been fascinating, hasn't it? But what do you think at the end of all that? Well, hearing Alexi describe the MO of these young men who are running the Conservative campaign, it feels clear to me that these tactics aren't going to stop on December 13th once the job is done. All the things that we've been discussing in this episode feel to me like they speak to a profound shift in how politicians communicate with the public, how they treat them and even how they see our democracy working. Just this morning, I retweeted... In annoyance, I'll I'll be honest, a tweet from the Tory account and it featured the silhouette of a bus. It was sleek and black and it looked like the trailer for some kind of blockbuster film and it had the caption, we're going to need a bigger bus. And it was a clear provocation, a reference to the Vote Leave bus that claimed that we'd save 350 million quid for the NHS if we left the EU. And that figure has obviously long been discredited. And but you were it, duly provoked, weren't you? I, I was, yes. And it, But it was the tone of the message and the bullishness of it. And I think we'd be really naive to think that this is confined to the campaign. I mean, you only have to look at 
America in the US and see that, you know, Donald Trump didn't stop mouthing off on Twitter after he became president. Obviously, after I tweeted the Tory bus, another journalist replied to me to say, well, it, well, it's clearly working then because I had retweeted it. And that might be true. Maybe I did amplify it. But it also feels corrosive to ignore these posts, to refuse to engage with them, because then I think we'd really be missing something that is changing the way that we're thinking about politics and talking about it. Yeah. So a big part of your worry, this is the new normal. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I had the same feeling. And I also thought that although we're increasingly used to talking about social media and really about Facebook as the new public square, I think what this election says and what we've learned in the course of the last half hour is that that's not true at all. And we should probably stop saying it. It's not one public square, it's thousands or it's millions of personal ones. So if it was literally a public square, it would be one where a politician could sidle up to every voter in it and whisper a promise into his or her ear and just keep doing that. A different promise in everyone's ear and none of us allowed to know exactly what anyone else has been promised. So my digital experience of this election will be different from yours and completely different from someone somewhere else in the country. And I think what's really troubling about that is that, of course, general elections have always been a mix of the local and the national. But at the heart of it, there was a shared experience. It was a national moment. But, but then do you think we should be looking at regulation? How do we sort of get a hold of any of that? I think we, we do. I mean, I think as campaigning shifts even more to social platforms, and I think we can expect that in future elections, I'm not sure we're going to have that national moment in quite the same way anymore because it's just tricky to see how we avoid more and more micro-targeting because social media makes that possible. But I do think we need to regulate to make sure that we can see what's going on. We just need real transparency in this because if an MP is using Facebook to whisper in the ear of a constituent, I want to hear what she or he is saying. And funnily enough, I think all this takes me back to what we were talking about half an hour ago, that Google search for what is a general election. And the truth is, I'm not sure I know anymore. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tortoise podcast. At Tortoise, we publish daily in our news app, which you can download from the App Store. And if you like this episode, please do share it or give us a review. And actually, it's even better than you said, isn't it, Basha? Because for the next month, oh, yes. while the election's on, you can get a month's free Tortoise through the app. You'd be mad not to. See you next week. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.